I'm trying to think of what my grandmother would have referred to as sedition because it was one of those things where you can't even whisper it. Do the women in your family have that thing where they whisper the unpleasant words, but they whisper it louder than they would have said it? No, no. The women in my family just say it loudly and pointedly at whoever they're talking about. Because in my family, it's like, oh, you know, I think he's got hemorrhoids. (laughs) And that's why he left the party early. I think he was part of that sedition. That's why his flight was delayed. Insurrection and the domestic no-fly list have completely ruined my super-spreading barbecue. I want to thank the people of Georgia for participating in this election. Everybody who cast your ballot, everybody who put your faith and confidence in our democracy's capacity to deliver the representation that we deserve. Scripture tells us that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let us rise up, greet the morning, and meet the challenges of this moment. Together we can do the necessary work and win the future for all of our children. Welcome to Ground Game, Georgia. From Atlanta, Georgia, America's newest blue state, I'm Holly Anderson. And just across the border in the still reddish state of Tennessee, I'm Marcus Ellsworth. Hey, Marcus. Hey, how's it, how is it down there in, uh, in Atlanta? Uh, the sky is blue, and so is the state. Hey, what a coincidence. We, we have a, a lavender trending into a periwinkle, trending into what I would call kind of a cornflower situation at the moment. Mm, I gotcha. Anyway, congratulations to Georgia on shedding several hundred pounds of unsightly hair and gristle as Kelly Leffler and David Perdue have both been kicked to the legislative curb. Uh, Dave, enjoy your island where you live. Uh, Kelly, enjoy going back to New York where you live. So... It has been a couple of weeks, uh, as you heard on our last episode. We held off on releasing our morning after election talk with your friend and mine, Rembert Brown, due to events. Uh, We are now coming up on the week of inauguration, in theory. Um, And you may be wondering why you're hearing from us at all. Uh, The election is over, finally. And we're still here because we're not done yet. Uh, The work's not done yet, obviously. You know that. But the story of the Georgia election is both unfinished and instructive. Yeah, and when we started this podcast, our idea was really to talk about how Georgia flipped blue in November and really just focusing on those stories specifically. But as we got to talking to organizers and reaching out to these people in these communities, and in Holly's case, even volunteering alongside some of them, we saw that there's so much more to learn about, that there are strategies in all these different communities, there are adaptive responses to the needs of these communities that all tie into how a state moves into the blue column over time. So we're not just done just because the election's over. We're going to keep covering a little bit more ground in Georgia. We have a few more episodes coming, is what we're trying to tell you. Uh, You already know the end of the story, but if you go back and listen to the earlier episodes, we encourage you to do so. We encourage you to tell your friends. You'll find that they're not necessarily pegged to news. You know, it's, it's not specific to the 2016, the 2018, the 2020, or 22 elections that... Uh, community aid and mutual aid networks are going to be more important in some areas than voter registration. 
uh, abolition versus activism is not a conversation that began with any recent election and it's not going away anytime soon. There are lessons that we've learned that you can take at a genre level uh, into other states and back into Georgia uh, in 2022. You might have heard we've got a governor's race coming up. So a few more episodes from us to put bows on this long, long, twisty campaign. And after that, well, you'll find out when we do. For today, we have something very special. Yes, we have an interview with Malika Redman of Women Engaged. Malika is a terrific speaker and educator, and uh, it was a privilege to sit with her for this time. Now, we talked to Malika um, a few weeks ago, uh, actually right before the, uh, the, the last day of voting in Georgia, before the election. And in this conversation, we talk about a lot of things. Malika was very informative and very generous with her time. Um, But a recurring theme with this conversation, I think, is something that has come up a lot in the past couple of years, especially talking about organizing and voting in Georgia. And it's really about what it really means to support and follow the lead of black women. I think it's a popular hashtag and a lot of people like to say it and put it on T-shirts. But Malika and the, the folks at Women Engaged actually walk that walk. So without further ado, here's our interview with Malika. Hi, my name is Malika Redman. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and my organization is Women Engaged, and I am the co-founder and executive director. My grandmother, both of my grandmothers, they always voted, and I would watch my grandmother, um, my mom's mom, who we lived with growing up, who would get dressed in her Sunday best every year to go vote and she would also volunteer at the polls and you know as a little girl i just thought this was what you're supposed to do that kind of sense of being engaged and also growing up as a black woman and and understanding the intersections of race and gender and class and all those kinds of things growing up in pittsburgh also the question around justice and fairness and dignity and respect were always in my consciousness when I went into college. So all of that led me to being where I am today and how we get to Women Engaged. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of Women Engaged? How did this organization come about? What is its origin story? So I had spent a pretty long career in the area of reproductive health rights and justice. Um, and feminist activism uh, research. And I was thinking about, um, as we moved into um, a a reality post Shelby V. Holder, thinking about what does that really mean? If you're in your mid-20s, mid to late 20s, you've probably lived your entire voting age life in a post Shelby V. Holder world where the federal government does not have to pre-clear changes that certain states uh, make to their voting laws. Without that oversight, we've seen a large increase in forms of voter suppression across states since 2013. Things like closing polling places, voter ID requirements. Uh, These stories seem commonplace, and they're a big part of the underpinning for why this show exists, but they're not supposed to be commonplace. Uh, And prior to the 2013 Shelby v. Holder decision, they weren't. Now they're normal again. Here we are. I am too young to understand a world without it. 
without um, a complete intact Voting Rights Act. And so while there have been this sort of bubbling up of issues around participation to vote and what it all means, having it be like squarely in my consciousness actually really scared me. I was concerned. As a Black person, a Black woman, knowing and understanding and having experience of what it's like to grow up in this country and deal with racism on a regular basis. When you pull away the tools and the mechanism to have that kind of behavior checked when it comes to voting, scared me. So quite frankly, I was like, as many ways that I can be a part of um, a process to make sure that voting is something that is accessible and we it continue to push to make this um, process even more democratic, that I want to be a part of that. While I am also centering the issues that are important, I clearly understood for me that if we're going to deal with reproductive justice for Black women, Black femmes, Black girls, that we have to deal with these fundamental democratic processes and, if, and voting was one of them. So Women Engage, was birthed sort of at that intersection of the issues that are important to me, um, the human rights of Black women, femmes, and girls, and integrated voter engagement. And again, growing up as someone with a perspective on what it means to invest in your community when everybody else has divested, I wanted to make sure that we were talking to our community members. And I also was sensitive to the fact that while I've lived in Georgia over 15 years, I'm not from here. I'm from Pennsylvania. I went to college here and graduate school here, and I've built a life here. But I want to also make sure that I am being and participating in ways that are respectful. And so we build an integrated voter engagement model, which means that we're talking to community members in the greater Metro Atlanta and the surrounding um, counties on and off election cycle, three to up to five times, depending on the year, a year um, with messages about how to be engaged. But most importantly, what are the issues that are important to you? And helping to connect the dots to the voter participation. And so that's why we stick to a nonpartisan 501c3 based voter engagement strategy. We hire folks from the communities that we work in because we have found that when someone's neighbor knocks on their door, they're more apt to answer the door. We have our office space in the communities that we work in, you know, and many of us live in the communities that we also work in. And so we have a real sort of deep investment. And that's how we got to Women Engage in 2014, is wanting to marry those things. And the other part to it is as someone who went to Spelman College and was taught at Spelman College that it is okay for us as Black women to center our lives in our academic study. Like, in fact, we're going to do that right now while you're here. And then you're going to go out in the world and you're going to be a part of that change and transformation. And so I was like, "Ooh, that's what I want to do. That's who I am. What's most important to Women Engage is that we bring to the table a centering of the issues that are so important to Black women and girls and femmes. And what we say is, is that, in fact, not only is it 
important for us to talk about the issues that are most intimate and personal to our lives in order to make to make our lives thrive. Um, but we can hold public leaders accountable to us thriving, not just making it. And that's what we do at Women Engage. We start from that place. And what's something that you wish more people understood about that work of supporting and building Black women's power? One is that I think that people assume, just like there's the assumptions broadly about, you know, Black community, but I think people assume largely that Black women are a monolith, that um, I think the 80s and 90s did a horrible job of, you know, scapegoating, particularly Black mothers, working class Black mothers. Um, in a box that is all of, you know, all of the issues that are problematic in our society. Um, and it is unfortunate because others who knew better also did not stand up for working class Black mothers. And I'm talking about people who see themselves as, you know, allies to racial justice and all those things. When it came to Black women and girls um, and the kinds of horrible racist right-wing tropes that were being thrown at us. People who knew better did not stand up. And we have been for a very long time being the ones to have to stand up for ourselves, tell our own story, um, tell the truth, bring fact into the room. And, and that is also where we sit at Women Engage. We bring the facts into the room so that it's not okay to just lean on a stereotype what I want more people to understand and know is that you, that it's important to read. It's important to do your work <laughs> and understand before engaging in any, any particular community. I'm always learning from my community as well. I don't know everything. You know, we just need folks who are for real about what it means to embody accountability and intersectionality when we're thinking about, you know, context and you know how issues come together and merge so that we can have better approaches, strategies and approaches to making our lives, our nation better. Just, just for, for clarity of like the scope of your work, when you're talking about intersectionality, when y'all talk about the work you do, and even in this conversation so far, you talk about the, the importance of working with black women, girls and femmes. Can you talk about that from like an intergenerational, intersectional perspective of what that means? So on the practical level, what it looks like is that our staff, our internal team, is made up um, largely of Black women who are intergenerational. We have people that participate, for example, like on our Canvas team who are in their 70s, who are 18, 19, 20, you know, so we make sure to have that kind of range. That has actually been really exciting because there's been so much cross-sharing and cross-learning. What also has been interesting, our Gen Zers are having conversations with their grandparents that actually have this shared understanding experience of what it means when you have to fight for your vote. Hmm. It's, a, it's a rich conversation to be able to have that point of connection for progress. We also make sure that, you know, women engaged, we're constantly learning and centering those of us who are LBT in our space, you know, and making sure that we are continuing to teach and train all of us about what does it mean to, in our own space, be recognized, 
to be acknowledged, you know, to have shared experience, but also experiences that are not shared. What does accountability look like in our own space? I work to create the kind of work environment that allows us to be able to do that because we center celebration. The co-founder of Women Engage, Margaret Cardbo, um, my dear friend, and um, before she passed in 2015, we had this statement that we would always say and what she would introduce into our space at Women Engage. I've learned to go where I am celebrated, not just tolerated. That's a great quote. So learning to go where I'm celebrated, not just tolerated, is what we do at Women Engage. That's how we sort of create the kind of the kind of environment that supports all of who we are and all of our complexities and dynamics. Can I take you back to the days after the election when it started to become apparent yeah. that we were not done yet. We all, I think, got to that sensation of getting to November 3rd and going, wait, this isn't a half marathon and the road is still stretching out in front of us. Can you take me through how you and women engaged, regrouped and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And how did you guys get there? So I would say the feeling of November 3rd was the feeling um, for us here in Georgia of 2017, of 2018 and 2020. It is for us, from our perspective as a, a 501c3 nonpartisan organization, what it, what, it, what it said to us this year in 2020 is that when people have more options to make sure that they can be counted, it works, even in a pandemic. And what I tell people, you know, a lot of folks forget is that Hurricane Zeta ripped through Georgia the last week of early voting. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Any, can you, anything else, please? Because we needed another challenge. Yeah, just one more. If you give us one more. <laughs> You know, we, we, you know, we got it, right? We were out of power at my house for like four days and we were one of the yes. lucky ones. Yeah. That's right, right. And so I feel bad when I'm like, we didn't have power for 48 hours. I'm so sorry. <laughs> right, No, we, days, were, like we were one of the lucky ones. There was, I could see, because mm. you can see on the Georgia power yeah. map, we had a little sliver outage and ours got restored. And then all around us, it was still red for like days yeah. and days after. And I remember being, I'm really glad I voted in October. And right. I wonder who else didn't, because I've been wondering yes. if we're going to see an accidental goosing of these runoff turnout numbers because there were people who physically, in more ways than physically. usual, couldn't get That's to the right. polls in November because we were cleaning Absolutely. up. But no, you're right. This is why early voting, the opportunity to early vote, the opportunity to vote by mail, to have the drop-off locations, to have weekend opportunities, like all of that matters because you, we just don't know during the Zeta situation, I was really concerned. I was really, really concerned because there were a number of things in terms of even our own strategies. You know, this was also a census year. So people were inundated with information and I was concerned about oversaturation. Along with that woven in was so much misinformation and the disinformation campaigns. So 
At the same time, internally, we were really breaking our own organizational records in terms of contacts and conversations. So it was a kind of felt like a bit of a toss up in a way. So we get to election night and the logic part of my brain said, look, we know what the data is saying. We know what the results were in years past. This is a monumental moment for opportunity for turnout and voter engagement and all. And there's a dynamic infrastructure of organizations and leaders, particularly those that are led by black women who have been doing this for a while. And we know what we know based on what we're seeing and in our conversations with our community members. Then there's the other part that was like, yeah, but people that have been through, excuse me, hell and back this year, those things were working at the same time. And it was a, the longest week of November, longest two weeks of November. But I felt, you know, um, really good based on what I could see internally from, you know, our preliminary results and the voter turnout was going to be good. Even for our own team, we had a hundred percent voter turnout rate. Seventy percent of our team members are Gen Z. Over fifty percent of them were, were first time voters. They all participated. And then when we looked at the results coming out of Georgia, ninety-two percent of black Gen Zers voted. Um, in the way of progress. At the same time, their their white peers voted 62% in the other direction. You know, it's very interesting to think about that. I think that trend is different nationwide, but in Georgia, it did come down racial lines in a lot of ways. To me, what it speaks to is that we have to really be speaking into the listening of young people of color um, they've gone through so much. When I think about, you know, young people who are coming from, you know, immigrant families, young people coming from LGBTQ families, single parent families, all kinds of different families. Um, we had young people who, as soon as COVID hit, they were in their senior year at, in, at college. Now they're not having a graduation. All the kinds of things have been very dramatic for that generation, um, extremely dramatic. I think that their turnout is also reflective of how dramatic this year has been. Those of us who are older don't see how urgent it is and how in some ways they feel like they're on the knife's edge. There's not a luxury not to connect the dots or not to have a perspective that's intersectional. It is about accountability. It is unafraid to talk about anti-Blackness, to talk about racial justice, to talk about reparations. They're unafraid to use that language. They use it and they believe that people should be held accountable to it, to you know talk about justice with regards to holding police accountable and talking about police violence against black bodies and talking about where funds need to go in other directions to make our community safe with dignity. It is powerful and um, exciting. And I would also say my millennial and Gen Z staff, they also want to be fully, completely recognized for who they are, like unapologetically. It's beautiful, you know? And so I will say for Women Engaged, one of the things that made me happy is that as we had to shift 
in 2020, once we started to learn more about what was happening with the, with COVID, I made a decision as a leader to say, we are moving to virtual space. So we did that very early on, um, early March, we, we moved to virtual space and that meant getting the technology and the tools and, and everything to our folks so that they could continue to work. The great thing is that we train all of our folks no matter sort of what level you are in the organization on all of the technologies so that we could still do our work um, during the primary, do our work for um, census education and outreach without missing a beat. I'm happy that women engaged can continue to be this steady drumbeat in my life and in our community's life. When you're looking at like these these strategies for for outreach and for building Black women's power, is are there anything you found in your work that's spe- very specific to Georgia? And then are there is there anything that's more universal, like could be applied anywhere? Some of the things that may feel kind of specific to Georgia is kind of thinking about being in the Southern uh, context and experience. There's such a rich, important history of civil rights and movement right here in the South and having the opportunity to tap into that and to be a part of an infrastructure of civic engagement and civil rights here is also been really key to our work. So that is part of a sense of pride here. That is also side by side, you know, some of the key issues that people have told us, especially black women here, You know, Georgia is a state that did not expand Medicaid. We have not actualized the full promise of the Affordable Care Act. Healthcare is critical here. The rates of uninsured make no sense. And so healthcare, access to affordable healthcare is very serious here. Affordable housing um, in our greater metro area. Some of this is reflective of the nation, but I know that when it, that piece around healthcare has been a real critical fight um and um in Georgia you know we've had um a number of rural hospitals closed so it becomes even more critical in rural areas with this covid context it is just enormous when i think about the safety net programs here in Georgia they also lack the kind of depth they need to really support um pregnant people, particularly pregnant Black people and Latinx and undocumented people with the kind of health care needed. Those kinds of things are very critical and important. And we, so we do a lot of time speaking about those issues here in Georgia. What I'm loving seeing from a national perspective, but also what I know um, when I think about scale and I think about you know what Women Engage brings and offers, I really do think it is about how do we make sure that we are placing at the center of any sort of public policy discourse, the needs of black women and making sure that we are finding ways again to interject that into any kind of discourse around how do we create public policy. We're seeing some of that obviously as the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine kind of rolls out. You know, there's these conversations about who is a frontline worker, who is an essential worker? What does that person look like? Whether they're in the medical field or not, 
What does it look like when we talk about research and trials for vaccines? What does it mean to have representation in all of those spaces? Because it's important. This conversation is happening all over the country. I'm happy to see that Black women leaders are interjecting in some of those spaces to say, we are here, we've been here, now we demand that you listen to us. That's what I would say, is that making sure that the perspective is inserted in these conversations. Is there anything in in particular that you think we need to be doing in order to make sure that this change we create is sustainable, especially if we're not doing it right now? Like, are there any gears you would shift along the way to make sure that this change that we do lasts? Yeah. I know that's a billion dollar question for everyone right now, but, you know, we're dreaming. We're trying to dream big. Well, we have to. I mean, we have to have to dream big. We have to dream bold. We have to dream for the now as well as for the future to really kick in that the importance of the urgency. I think one of the things that I have found so important as I've been doing this work with Women Engaged, is just how many people, just generally, just generally, aren't sort of aware of the importance of their participation. Because one, there's so much spent on the big national elections once every four years. So in a way, things that happen every year when there's an opportunity to vote on the local level, statewide level, just there's drop off because information isn't there. The why isn't there. And sometimes it takes just someone in your life to say, hey, did you know that we're trying to vote for our city council members right now and these other things? A lot of times people don't know. And so part of our job is just really civics 101, on and off election cycle, it's all the time because people are busy and it can go in and out and it's not a judgment, it's what it is. So making sure that the messaging is constant, there's a consistency around the messaging and investing again, deep investment in communities with layered communication strategies that make sure that people hear and understand and know what's happening and it can be done with their interests in mind. That's why Women Engage is so important and why our integrated voter engagement strategy is important because this is going to end and we're going to be talking to people in a couple of weeks about the next important thing. You know, and for us, we're going to be talking about fair maps and we're going to be talking about what that means in terms of representation, uh, redistricting, and you know, but we got to give people that education to continue to build up the groundswell of people who are organized. Organized people can hold their governments, hold public leaders accountable when they're organized and when they feel confident about what they know and understand on the issues. So that's going to be key. I think the other thing that's really going to be key is making sure that the messaging, you know, I love the fact of like having a space like this with your podcast and the kind of spaces like this, because we've got to make sure that people can hear from from community leaders. They can hear someone who sounds like them um, asking the questions. You know, the last four years has been awful to freedom of the press and for the opportunity to have, you know, people in power and in leadership to be held accountable and to ask the questions and the maturity to respond to the to the questions being asked 
We So this is so important. We need that. Um, and so that's what I would say is that it's, it's about continuing to um, build on that. You've talked a couple of times about Black people, specifically Black women, not being monolithic voters. And something that I've been thinking about a lot while we do this show is that to the extent in which they are, it's because they've been forced into a monolithic formation because they keep having to cast uh, a term our listeners might not be familiar with, defensive votes. They keep having to vote in favor of their own survival and vote against their own destruction rather than in favor of their own interests. And I'm glad that we are finally talking about the exhaustion that has to come with that on a cellular level, the generational exhaustion that comes from not even being able to focus on your interests or, you know, uh, this politician is more in line with how I would like my taxes to be structured. This politician is more in line with what I would like to be done, you know, about the potholes on my street. Uh, but this one is likely to install a police commissioner who's less likely to murder my family. You know, we, we say that that's a choice, but it's not like at the ballot box. That is not a choice. The thing that I'm trying very long-windedly to get around to, because I know I'm certainly not saying anything that you don't already know, is how do you uh, how do you fight that exhaustion? Because I don't have the capacity to imagine what it's like. What? How do you keep going? So I would kind of complicate a little bit of of um, your uh, your analysis on that on um, black women voters yeah, are complicated yeah, a little please. bit. We don't have these kinds of experience that that make us all one kind of thinker or perspective or whatever. So even thinking about sort of, you know, how to speak to black women in different ways is very important. So, you know, like this year you would hear things like, um, oh, the educated suburban mom or the, you know, I don't know the, the, the working the, class, the working order, class, or the, right, or the single educated woman, or and I was all code for white women. Um, but what we know in Georgia is that when you look at the surrounding counties, particularly the ones that had historical changes, what we know here in Georgia is that that suburban educated mom is black. <laughs> that suburban educated mom is Latinx. Like the suburbs are diverse. So in some ways, that's what I'm speaking to is like, you know, whoever's doing these kinds of polling and, and creating these kind of points to talk about who is a this and that, they're missing things. And then therefore what happens is that the investment is wrong in terms of on the ground engagement is wrong. So there's that piece. To your question, it's a bit complicated. On the one hand, yes, it is the experiences of racial terrorism, this health pandemic, these crises that in some ways has brought us together in, in a sense as black women in our voting power and strength. But the other thing is, is that that's not only it because obviously everybody is experiencing these things in different ways, but they're all happening at the same time. So that in and of itself alone isn't necessarily how we get to Black women's strength 
in voting in in the way of progress. I think the other reasons why we get there is because of the sense of values, the sense of culture, the sense of protecting culture and proud of culture and an education. And I think all of those things bring us to how we get to Black women voting in the ways that we do. So I would say that for Black people, but for Black women in particular, this notion of my vote, it's my business, it's individual to me. I will say this is the way in which I believe for so many Black women, when we think about the vote, we don't think about our vote from a perspective of my individual vote, but from the perspective of what does it mean for our entire community? And therefore, um, not only organizing myself to get out the vote, but I'm also organizing the folks at my church. I'm also organizing my sorority. I'm also, you know, um, organizing my family, my partner. We'd like to thank Malika for being so generous with her time and giving us so much insight into her work. You can follow her work on Facebook and Twitter at Women Engaged, and you can find them on Instagram at women underscore engaged. You can also follow their work at their website directly at womenengaged.vote. And for more from us, and there will be more from us, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at groundgamepod, on the web at groundgamepod.com. And since we're not done yet, a podcast plea for you. You've heard it before. It really does help. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends. If you don't like the show, tell them anyway. Don't tell them you don't like it. We don't want to hear it. We're all about positivity. And make sure you go back and listen to all the episodes. Like, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud from our first episode to this one. I am really proud of what we've done here. And I'm proud of you, Holly. I'm proud of me, too. I mean, I'm proud of you. And with that, for those of you listening out there, Take care of yourselves and be good to each other. Our show is produced, written, and hosted by Holly Anderson and Marcus Ellsworth, with help from the Ground Game Georgia Volunteer Armada, including Brian Gutierrez Shelton, Ben Tiernan, and me, Ashley J. Hobbs. Editing by Douglas Reyes Cerrone and Arleel Rodriguez. Our theme is by the awesome Jonathan Sanford additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Designed by Jasmine Johnson and Nicole Mackey runs our social. Ground Game Georgia is a production of UNIR. Tell us to take care of each other, Marcus. Oh, yeah, hey. Um. <laughs> <laughs>